Some words are defined almost entirely by movies. Like pirates. Picture a pirate in your mind. He's got an eye patch, peg leg, missing teeth, a scar on his face, and of course, a parrot on his shoulder. This character is a product of Hollywood, Treasure Island, The Buccaneer, The Goonies, and Peter Pan. Galveston, Texas has a pirate museum about actual pirates, and they were not what we imagine. The museum traces the Hollywood depictions that formed our modern concept of pirates. Pirates were real, and they did some of the things we know them for, but they looked like sailors and wouldn't have emphasized their R's with every word. If you want to learn about actual pirates, the ones from real history, you have to first strip away some of your Hollywood assumptions. And we need to do the same thing with another concept, the topic of today's episode. We are gonna be talking about temples, and here again, most of our cultural ideals come from a combination of Hollywood and various religious traditions. Our modern concept of a temple is far from what the biblical authors had in mind. So let's put a pause on everything we think we know and consider the biblical portrait, the Hebrew concept of the Haikal. To reconstruct a truer category of temple, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, the Lord created the heavens and the earth, and in Genesis 2, he appointed Adam as a priest over the earth. We don't usually think of Adam as a priest, but the Hebrew terms describing Adam's role suggest this. In Genesis 2, verse 15, God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. Those Hebrew terms had a priestly undertone. The same terms are used in many places. Numbers 3, 8, 18, 1 Chronicles 23, and Ezekiel 44 to describe the duties of priests. So if Adam was supposed to be a priest, where's the temple? Would it be Eden? This is where our modern category quickly gets challenged because the answer essentially is yes. We think of a temple as a mystical building, but the Hebrew idea of a haikal was something different. It was a place where heaven and earth overlapped. The Bible draws many subtle connections between Eden and the later temples, too many connections to even list. The Garden of Eden was a place founded after God rested from his work of creation, and he filled the garden with his special presence, walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. The later biblical accounts about the temple are patterned after the creation, imitating its vocabulary. God established the later temples after periods of rest and then God's special presence came upon those places as well. And as with later temples, Eden was established on a mountain facing east. Mountains were seen by ancient cultures as meeting places between heaven and earth, which is basically what a temple was. When Israel's temple was later established, it was filled with garden imagery that reminded the people of Eden. On the outside, you have the wilderness, the part of the earth that is still chaotic and wild. Then, when you enter Eden, it's lush and full of gold and precious stones. Within Eden, you enter a garden full of trees and flowers and fruit. And at the center of the garden, there's the tree of life, as well as the headwaters. A river flows out from the middle of the garden, splitting into four headwaters as it flows down the mountain, bringing life to all the surrounding lands. 
When Adam and Eve ate in the garden, they dined with God himself, because this was a place where heaven and earth overlapped. The ground was holy because God was there. Unlike the later temples, Eden was not to remain static. God called his priests, Adam and Eve, and their progeny to grow the garden, to expand the Lord's temple across the whole face of the earth, shifting it from chaos and emptiness to fullness and flourishing. Genesis 1, 28, God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and cultivate it. In other words, spread out, have babies and spread the garden. But instead of joining God in this work of extending his special presence throughout the whole earth, humans turned away. We plotted a rebellion. Before we were exiled from the garden, the Lord offered a sacrifice for Adam and Eve, killing an animal and using its skin to fashion garments to cover their nakedness. The east entrance of Eden was then guarded by fearsome cherubim, or in Hebrew, cherubim. They're heavenly guardians, just like the cherubim that later appeared on the curtain of the temple to guard the Holy of Holies. For a long time, there was no temple to the Lord. The connection was severed and earth was adrift, decaying into chaos. God's people continued to trek to the tops of mountains to offer sacrifices, but Eden was gone. But on one fateful day, as Moses climbed a mountain, the Lord's presence found him there and spoke to him from a burning bush. God's instructions would eventually lead Moses to return to that mountain, to Sinai, where God would establish Israel as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He would reestablish a focal point of his presence on the earth through the construction of a tabernacle. And that's the part of Exodus where most of us stop reading. The following chapters are full of blueprint instructions and they are really hard to follow. But if we look closely, some fascinating details connect forward to later facets of God's story. God was establishing Edenic concentric circles, a priesthood, a place for heaven and earth to overlap. This mobile temple sat at the center of the Israelite camp and like Eden, it would face east. At its core was the Holy of Holies. And if you pay close attention, this room was built in the shape of a perfect cube, 10 cubits in every dimension. That detail will later become important. Beyond the Holy of Holies was another room, the Holy Place, and it was filled with gold and garden imagery, echoes of Eden. And the next layer was the outer court where the priests offered sacrifices. And then Israel, the kingdom of priests, and lastly, the whole earth. The tabernacle was full of echoes of Eden. It used the same materials that were prominent in Eden. There were trees decorated with almond blossoms and flowers. The later temple was full of carvings of gourds, palm trees, and open flowers. It would have looked like a garden. The lampstand in the tabernacle was made to look like an almond tree at full bloom. And as with the garden, God provided food for his priests the Lord invited the priests to dine with him, to be in a special relationship with him. We don't often realize that the tabernacle and later the temple would have been quite a festive place. It would have smelled like a delicious barbecue in a land where meat was a rare luxury. In a world where hunger was common, the smell of the offerings went up to heaven as a pleasing aroma, but it also went out to the community as a continuous invitation 
to come and enjoy the delicious treat of fellowship with God. Some of the meat was reserved for God alone or for the priests, but some was also shared by the community in fellowship with God. The tabernacle then was a place of rest, beauty, food, abundance, echoes of Eden, a place where heaven and earth overlapped, where God's special presence rested. Solomon's Haikal took things to a whole new level. He used ornate carvings from acacia, cedar, cypress, and olive wood. His temple was covered with palm trees, flowers, fruit, lilies, pomegranates, gourds, animals, and carabim. These echoes of Eden served as reminders of what had been lost, but they were also hints of a turn in the story, that something of Eden was being recovered. Once again, the most holy place reserved for God's presence is described as a perfect cube, now 20 cubits in every dimension. So like the tabernacle, but bigger. Israel had the symbol of Eden, a partnership with God in a place where heaven and earth overlapped, but they didn't live in that reality. They rebelled continuously against the Lord for hundreds of years until first Israel and then Judah fell to their enemies. Solomon's temple was destroyed. After the destruction of the temple, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision of a new Haikal, one with a river flowing out of it, just like Eden. Ezekiel 47 verse 12 says, And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. So here's the promise. Flourishing for the whole earth will flow once again from God's very presence. One day the Lord would create a new temple that would flow with living water and trees that bring food and healing. The dimensions of that temple were to be even larger than Solomon's temple. The hope of Israel was in the future, not in the ashes of the past. Isaiah also prophesied in Isaiah 2 verse 3, writing, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Isaiah foresees a day in the future when the nations will stream into Zion from north, south, east, and west. They will come and learn the law of God. In other words, Eden will grow like it was always supposed to, to fill the whole earth. The earth will come and learn to be like heaven. Sure enough, a new temple was eventually constructed, but it wasn't massive, like in Ezekiel's vision. It wasn't even impressive like the Temple of Solomon. In fact, when the elderly saw it being constructed, they started weeping because it didn't come close to Solomon's temple that had been destroyed when they were young. Ezra 3.12 says, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. 
while many others shouted for joy. Israel had a temple again, but it was a shadow of its former glory, a far cry from Ezekiel's description. And this was where things stayed for about 500 years, until in 20 BCE, Herod the Great wanted to curry favor with the Jews by refurbishing the temple. Herod doubled the size of the temple compound and constructed a massive new temple structure, but this place wasn't anything like Eden. The priests in those days were corrupt, buying their positions through bribery, and the temple was divided into a hierarchy of courtyards, adding new barriers to keep women and Gentiles from entering beyond a certain point. The temple wasn't living up to its role as the place where heaven and earth overlapped, a fountainhead of living water that would flow out and cause flourishing. Instead, it followed the rules of earth, money, power, racial hierarchy, sexism. In Jesus' day, the Gentiles could only enter the outermost court of the temple, and that court was functioning not as a house of worship for all nations, but rather it was desecrated into a market where Jews could purchase sacrificial animals or convert currency. The Jewish courts remained pure, untarnished, set apart for worship. But the merchants were encroaching on the outer Gentile court, and the priests and the people let it happen. When Jesus comes in, he's furious. He flipped their tables and scattered the money. Luke 11:17 offers insight into Jesus' indignation. Jesus says there, Is it not written, My Father's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is quoting a key passage from Isaiah. When we glance there, we immediately see what Jesus was getting at. Isaiah 56, verse 7, speaks of how God would welcome foreigners into his temple. It says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus also quoted Jeremiah 7, verse 11, with the den of robbers dig. There, the Lord rebuked Israel for oppressing the vulnerable people one minute, then worshiping God the next. The Lord warns His people to truly amend their ways and their actions if they want to continue to have access to the Lord through the temple. The place where heaven and earth meet has to follow the ways of heaven, the ways of love. He warns that they cannot act unjustly to their neighbor and then turn around and pretend like they were close to God. He wouldn't have it. The temple was supposed to be an embassy of heaven on earth, overlapping and eventually expanding to fill the world. But in Jesus' day, it was just more of the same self-centered, worldly misuse of power and blessing. In John 2.19, Jesus makes an earth-shattering claim. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The people were obviously taken aback. It had taken 46 years to build the temple. What did Jesus mean he would rebuild the temple in three days? Jesus was speaking in a parable, talking about his own body, his resurrection. He understood his identity as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was the true temple of the Lord, the high priest, the great sacrifice, the tree of life at the center of the garden. He is the true Hekal of the Lord, ground zero for where heaven and earth overlap. That is why John says that Jesus tabernacled among us. Jesus was the true special presence of God, the emissary of heaven and earth. But it doesn't stop with that. Remember, God's plan from the beginning was for the whole earth to be filled and cultivated with gardener priests, for every nation to become part of his kingdom. Jesus inducts us into his mission. 
He blesses us and makes us blessings. He wraps us into his program of life and flourishing. When Jesus was crucified, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was no longer separated from the world and guarded by Caribbean. After Jesus ascends to his throne, we get this crescendo moment. Jesus' spirit fills his followers. Heaven and earth now overlap in us. God's holy of holy presence comes to people. Just like the flames of fire that lit the temple and the burning bush, burning but not consuming, the fire of God's presence rested on the heads of believers. They became like little temples. Paul describes the church as God's temple, where each Christian is like a living stone, and together we constitute the temple of the Lord. And then we arrive at Revelation, where the temple theme comes to a beautiful and climactic culmination. The Bible begins with a garden surrounded by God's presence, with a tree of life and living water. It ends the same way. Revelation depicts God creating a new heavens and earth, and it shows the two are combined. They perfectly overlap. Chapter 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw a holy city coming down out of heaven from God, and I heard, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old things have passed away. The new Jerusalem, God's city, comes down and rests on earth. Heaven and earth are combined into a single whole, and the Lord dwells with humanity again. That's where the story is heading. John measures this city, and it is a perfect cube. Remember, the only cube structures in the Bible are the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and temple. But this holy place is astronomical. It's the size of a planet. God's city is a perfect cube, but this one is 10,000 by 10,000 by 10,000 stadia. A stadia was the largest unit their culture had for distance, and 10,000 was their largest number. So this was the biggest size that they could describe. The point is, God's holy presence is everywhere. The whole earth becomes the most holy place. Then John sees the tree of life, the river of living water, and God's provision of a feast for his priests. Chapter 21 says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The garden is back in a massive way. John goes on, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord Almighty and the Lamb. There isn't a temple in the city because the whole city is the fulfillment of everything the temple was pointing at. 
heaven and earth are reunited forever. God will dwell with his people. So knowing all this, how does understanding the theme of God's Hekal affect our lives? What should we take away? It's a sobering high invitation. It's incredible that God invites us to not only be his priests, but also the place of his dwelling on the earth. The Lord takes up residence within us through his spirit. We are no longer our own. We are the hands and feet of God. He makes his appeal to the world through us. So we need to ask ourselves, if someone looked at my life or my church, would they see a bastion of healing, generosity, and flourishing that goes out to the nations? Would they see and experience God's rest and presence? Do our neighbors see us offered up as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God? Or do we look like the corrupted temple of Jesus' day, operating according to the principles of the world, hoarding God's blessings for ourselves like a den of robbers? Are we like the Jerusalem temple, living like God's story revolves around us? Or are we like Jesus' followers on Pentecost, who received God's Spirit and then immediately began to flow with living water, sharing the gospel with foreigners from all nations? We'll leave you with a quote from Psalm 65:4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your haikal.